Hello everyone and welcome to M Pavilion. My name is Jen Zinsk and I'm the associate producer of M Pavilion. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the Boon people who are the traditional owners of the land in which we are gathered and pay my respects to their elders, both past and present. Tonight's M talk will be an in conversation with Ramesh Mario Nithyendram and Santilla Chingape. Ramesh is known as the bad boy of the ceramic scene. He has won prestigious awards in a short career and has two solo shows on at the moment at the Ian Potter Museum of Arts and at the National Gallery of Australia. Santilla is an award-winning SBS journalist. Today they're going to talk about Ramesh's work, his ideas and his influences. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> um, hi, everyone. Hi, Ramesh. Hello. Um, the bad boy of the art world. <laughs> Where did that come from? Oh, where did that come from? Um, I think it's the bad boy of ceramics and it's not really that hard to be a bad boy in a ceramic scene. You do anything and people have a problem with it. Um, <laughs> um, it came from an article in the Sydney Morning Herald. I think you know what it's like. All those mainstream journalists want to get some, you know, sexy words in there. But, um... <laughs> there I am. Okay. <laughs> 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 well, it It's a great way to start. <laughs> um, it came after, I think, I won the Sid Meier Award in 15, 2015, which is often promoted as Australia's richest and premier award for artists working in the medium of ceramics. And um, I think there was a bit of controversy, controversy um, following that um, because... In the past, I think it had been traditionally given to people who were, I guess, more established in the field of ceramics, which is a fairly, um, like, slippery term, you know, the field of ceramics, especially at the moment. Um, so I think this whole idea, people were projecting that I was, like, this image of me being really radical and bad. Um, but I never really saw myself in that way. I thought I was really nice to work with and stuff. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, you mentioned to me um, during our chat that you actually copped quite a bit of um, criticism from, yep. you know, more traditional ceramicists. Oh, yeah. What was that like? Um, uh I think that just comes hand in hand with the internet. Um, it seems to give a voice to people, and which is good, you know, um, people who have access to the internet, I should say. Um, but it was kind of, I think it was surprising because I think people had really projected this idea of me being a ceramicist. Oh, thank you. Um, but I'd never really thought of myself that way. And I think people were chucking around terms like um, no skill, lack of skill, um, disrespect to the medium, blah, blah, blah. And it was just kind of ridiculous because I'd think about the... It was also because there was a very specific demographic of people who are most vocal. And um, surprisingly, it was um, older white males. Um, and... <laughs> not surprisingly. <laughs> and it was kind of like, oh, you know what? Like, I think people are often very narrow-minded in that they have this kind of historical amnesia, um, thinking that, you know, the history of something, there's one history, but there's actually multiple histories, just like with anything. And I'm like, I'm not concerned with um, functional tableware in any respect, apart from putting it in my cupboard. Um, so it was kind of a bit like, it was a bit of a like head fuck, being like, why are these people even bothering with me? And I just want to go back a little bit to why you started making sculptures because it's relatively new practice for yep, you. You haven't yep, been doing it for that long. Yep, yep. Um, you know, what, what prompted that? Um, 
I studied painting and drawing actually at university. I'd never, I'd never done like a like a sanctioned ceramics course in anything really. Um, but what I found was I was like pretty shit at painting, but I really liked it. But um, it was I, I always like struggled. I really loved texture and surface and color and form. And I think just very naturally, um, working with clay became, and I guess more sculptural media became really like this obvious and almost natural progression because what I found was in painting, you kind of, you kind of develop this skill or um, set of principles. Like you learn how to use things like transparent, flat, broken color. You learn relationships between warm and cool, between positive and negative. Um, and, you know, things which have different chromatic values, for example. And I think that actual training has, was probably the most um, important in actually for me to develop my ceramic practice um, because I think it was really about surface and colour um, that that kind of training in painting really kind of got me to hone in on. Um, but I think once I started making with clay, I think it became really enjoyable as well. And I think people underestimate... Um, the value of things being fun, and I always found working with clay pretty fun. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, with your work, um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, um, for anyone that hasn't come across your work, how <laughs> would you describe it? <laughs> um, oh, people always ask me what I do, and it's always that kind of awkward moment where I pause and I just say figurative sculpture. Um, <laughs> it could be anything. But um, I think, uh, like... It's kind of funny, though, because I think I have an idea about the work I don't want to make, and in some ways that kind of informs what I do want to make, more so than it being the other way around. Like, um, I hate going to exhibitions and seeing that kind of formulaic approach. Like, here's my one painting, but here is it in blue. Here's it in Payne's Grey. Here, here it is in Ultramarine. Um, <laughs> and I kind of wanted to think about... Um, what I respond to and value in visual culture um, and in just life in general. And I think words like um, expressive, wild, chaos um, kind of all come into there. But at the same time, I think it's also very constructed aesthetic. Um, like, as people would probably know, like, making a five-metre-tall ceramic sculpture, I have to work with an engineer... It's not like I can just, you know, chuck some clay around and like, here we go, National Gallery, here's your thing. Um, so, <laughs> um, so I think that's actually a really interesting question. I've never thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I, you know, looking at your work, it looks, I mean, it, it, it really hits you um, yep. from all levels. It's bright, it's bold, there's a lot going on. But what I actually find quite interesting about what you do is just how considered every single thing is. Mm -hmm. Um, and that it's actually intentional. It's yep. You're not just trying to, yep. you know, yep. shit all over everyone. <laughs> I think um, I think this kind of framework of intent is really interesting, because uh, like what I found with especially working with say color, um, I can't just chuck on like five different. It might look like I've just gone through the glaze cabinet, been like, yeah, yeah, I've had some of this. Let's chuck it all together. Um, but I think understanding I think for me from a formal perspective and from making perspective um, understanding color and ways to kind of put colors together um, is probably the most I guess important thing in terms of things being constructed but I think the other aspect is um, I'm really into really good contemporary design and I think a lot of the time because um, I teach a bit of design which is a bit strange um, but a lot of the time, it's just things like form, function, the way that I travels. Like, I think from a formal, like from a maker's perspective, I think you've got to be quite um, 
considered with all those different kind of aspects. But the other thing is, I think um, a lot of people come to art with this sense of, um, I don't know, like I, I, I don't like the kind of art that um, is passive or is orthodox. I don't, I don't mean there needs to be like 10 dicks and, you know, and anus and something for it to be unorthodox. It's just that I think um, for me and as an artist, I'm always thinking about, um, like I always think about the studio process. And if I'm, for example, making an arm, I'll think, oh, does this arm need to have fingers? Can it be this long? And what's every, what are all the different ways I can make an arm? Does it need an arm? Um, and I think I've got this kind of overactive imagination thing and that always feeds into like how I actually construct the sculptures but from the other perspective I'm really interested in things like museum practice um, and what I've kind of especially with the show at the Potter um, for me like the way that museums are constructed and all the orthodoxies and rules um, around those things and the systems of value um, in which things like museum furniture can give objects um, that could just be you know in your drawer and you wouldn't like give it any notice um, I think is, for me, is this kind of microcosm about the world in general and systems of knowing in general. Um, and that's kind of how I wanted to approach the Ian Potter Museum. I wanted it to kind of be about, like, creation and getting people to think a bit more critically about um, the things they encounter in cultural contexts and specifically in museum contexts. Mm. And you do explore a lot of themes through yep. that show. Um, gender and gender fluidity is one of them. Yep. Um, can you talk us through that? And yep. Um, Gender fluidity, that's a kind of funny thing because I was really like, because I've had, I've had a fairly orthodox art education in that, you know, I went to UNSW Art and Design, did my honours, did my MFA. Um, and, you know, you get kind of prompted to start researching all the current developments in the field and, you know, and then they kind of shove all this like theory on you, which I don't have an issue with um, in lots of perspectives. But what was kind of interesting to me um, from a life perspective and actually just looking at the world around around me is kind of understanding different frameworks of gender, even from like a legal um, perspective. Like I think what we've kind of found in the last, you know, 10 years is that um, gender identity isn't solely kind of um, situated around people's genitals anymore because um, there's a sense of um, self-definition. So, you know, you can have a penis and identify as a woman, you know, and that is a legally viable way um, to identify as a woman. So I think in terms of um, representing this kind of contemporary construction of gender, I think we, I think what I like to do is present these bodies that kind of have these um, attributes or indexes of both genders. And because I always think about sculpture, like, and how creation idols and things were created. And a lot of the time, if you look at things like Christianity and Hinduism and lots of other cultures, these kinds of figures are almost um, these symbols that, you know, structure gendered relationships. Um, if you look at fertility figures, there's kind of discourses around women's bodies. So I think kind of, because I'm always kind of thinking about looking back and looking forward kind of at the same time. So in my head, something that's kind of, multi-gendered from an anatomical perspective um, seems like more of a relevant and inclusive um, kind of idol model. Mm. And hair. And hair. <laughs> um, yeah. Are you talking about the human hair? I, I'm talking about the human hair on the, on, on the sculptures and what yeah, you're yeah. trying to explore. Yeah. All right. Um, well, I have this... I think what... Most people in my gen... Actually, I found it more people in the generation below me. They're really obsessed with the internet. Like, I think the internet's really amazing because I think, like, the most... Um, probably the most subversive and... I hate the word radical, but I'm going to use it. Content actually exists on the internet. Um, not that that's a good thing. It's just an observation. And the other thing that kind of comes with the internet is that... Um, 
there's this sense that um, anything can be bought and sold. And again, an observation, not a good thing or a bad thing. And what I found really interesting was, um, like, as an artist, particularly an artist of um, colour, um, there's almost this expectation that you'll in some way address your cultural identity um, in your work, um, especially when you're operating in a fairly Western context. And I think from life and from the... like. I don't want to say using hair is this completely intellectual thing because it kind of isn't. I also like just love the having the human hair like in my drawer and stuff and I think it's fabulous. But I guess if I went back to a more um, narrative perspective, um, I always wanted my like works to have a kind of tension between hard and soft just from a material perspective. Am I speaking really fast? <laughs> but it's okay? Okay. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I always wanted there to be like um, this tension between hard and soft. And I thought, what's the opposite to clay? And in my head, it was polystyrene and I used polystyrene. But from a touch perspective, hair seemed to be this thing that um, I think could emphasize, you know, the clayness of clayness. That makes me sound like a wanker. But um, <laughs> I just, I think putting hair on the clay kind of made me feel like you saw the clay thing as hard and then the hair is soft. But from, I guess, a cultural and like philosophical perspective, I'd say, um, there seems to be this um, fetishizing of people from different racial groups um, based on the texture and weave of their hair. And um, what was really interesting was I went on eBay and I wanted there to be these kind of fabulous curls and things on, um, on my sculptures. I wanted them to be kind of wild free, like, you know, look at me, um, not like dead straight, like, you know, hugging my cheeks kind of thing. And um, what I found was you could actually buy hair from all of these regions across the world on eBay fairly at readily, right? So you could just kind of search Indian human hair, Sri Lankan human hair, Peruvian human hair, and there, there it is um, in weaves, processed, put in those threads so you can sew them into your hair. So I bought like a shitload of this, um, of Indian human hair. And I wanted to do it in a fairly ethical way. And <laughs> it was kind of because I wanted to make sure people weren't being like, you know, forcibly having their heads shaved. But what it told me when I kind of emailed them, I'm like, so how do you get this hair? Because I spent like thousands of dollars on hair. <laughs> um, they basically said that people would, would um, kind of shave these heads as part of um, sacrifice in religious contexts. And once they shaved them, they kind of lost attachments. They swept them up and like gave them to, and then sold them to these companies in China that would string them together. And then they'd get sent to me because I'd buy them. And I thought within that was this really kind of interesting narrative around globalization, the way in which um, people's bodies are commodified and exist in, I guess, this capitalist framework. But I guess the question I always had when I kept buying this hair was, I'm not really critiquing it because I've just spent thousands of dollars on it. But um, I always, the other kind of fun thing about using organic matter is that um, the museums freak out a bit because apparently it can br it brings bugs <laughs> into the museum, but lice and stuff. But mine didn't do that. They froze it. <laughs> So, okay, so speaking about the gallery space, you touched yeah, yeah, on yeah. it before about how you really like to challenge how those spaces are used. Yeah. And something that I found interesting in your show that's currently um, on exhibition at the yeah. Ian Potter Museum yeah. is uh, the invitation to the audience to follow you on social media or to look you up. I thought that was quite <laughs> yeah, yeah, interesting yeah. that you yeah. were actually encouraging people to participate in the process mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, well... Was that I, deliberate? Yeah, well, I think... Um, I think most artists are a bit delusional if they think that 
Uh, well, I don't know. I shouldn't say that. But I feel like um, when you make an art practice, I think at the end of the day, you are responsible for what you make. Um, and, um, like, if you want to see what I do behind the scenes, there it is on my Instagram. But um, I think the other thing is it was this kind of pseudo tongue-in-cheek reference to this whole idea of this artist is this, like... Because I think... If you have a solo exhibition, like, it's all about you. Like, let's be real. Like, you could talk about all the social issues you're addressing all you like, but at the end of the day, it's your name in the biggest text. Um, so I kind of wanted to, like, uh, be really kind of forthcoming with this acknowledgement that at the end of the day, this is a solo show about me and position myself as this kind of pseudo-creator, but at the same time kind of be a bit self-deprecating because, like, on the two main walls, I had, like, Ramsdeep69, which is, like, my Instagram handle, but on the other side of the wall... I had like Ramesh sucks at the same time to kind of counter that a bit. Um, so it was kind of like self self effacement mixed with like this big kind of a, like masculine street kind of tag. Um, and there's an element of self portraiture in the whole exhibition. So it kind of felt quite natural to include this aspect of my life. Um, was on, there, was on there an awareness that? Um, because your exhibition is so bright and it's quite, mm -hmm. in, it's inviting people essentially to take photos, to take selfies. Yeah, yeah. Were you conscious of that as well, that people would be yeah. using that space that yeah, way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I remember I said to Jackie, who curated the show, like I said, I want, I want a really photogenic show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think there are lots of purists who say, oh, you know, it doesn't, like lots, I don't know, I think it's kind of interesting though, because I think like what, I've, what you kind of notice is like within lots of museums especially, um, lots of cur curators and uh, and, you know, artists and there's this whole influence of social media. Like, they have to think about how many likes they're going to get because in some way they think the amount of likes equals numbers equals, you know, key performance index indicators. And so there's this kind of whole thing happening where, um, you know, artists with lots of Instagram followers have this kind of curatorial um, traction and then start to get acquired by big institutions. Um, so I was, like, thinking, oh, you know what? And at the end of the day, like, I'm not. I'm not stupid. Like I'm like. If it doesn't end up on the internet, like, like I think you've kind of failed as a show, as an artist a bit. Like not that. Only because, like, the internet is the way that most people will encounter the work, um, and that's just being pragmatic. Like most people will just, you know, look the thing up and be like, oh, my God, you're my favourite artist. And it's like, okay, cute. But, um, <laughs> like, <laughs> they've just seen it on a screen. So I think what I was really interested on, re interested in this stage was to make a show that also had viability in a screen-based platform that was, I guess, on an internet, on a laptop, and just kind of in that kind of selfie context. Like, you know, like... I also kind of like, I always wanted to see like a big room of pink and yellow and scribbles and graffiti. So um, it was definitely on the cards. So how, how do you feel, I guess, as an artist that makes this work that's obviously quite considered and, uh, you know, you are exploring a lot of very political issues um, and uh, people go into the space and they're taking photos and taking selfies and mm. perhaps not quite understanding what you're trying to get at, but yep. because their penis is everywhere, I need a <laughs> selfie with... Do you know what I mean? Like, how does, how does, how does that make you feel as someone yep. that creates that work? Um, I, I'm fine with it. Well, cause I, <laughs> well, I don't know. I always kind of think about approaching art with, like, a, a really kind of egalitarian perspective. So I kind of think, will my friend's two-year-old enjoy it? Will my friend's grandma enjoy it? Or is there potential for my friend's two-year-old to enjoy it? Is there potential for my friend's grandma to enjoy it is there potential for someone from a non-english speaking background to be able to engage with these works um on some kind of meaningful level and um like i always think that um 
engagement with you know cultural institutions is, is like a good thing if you know what I mean um if people are going in I think you know good on them um and for the people who want to kind of engage in a more deeper level they can you know get the catalog and read the essay um but I'm kind of well aware that most like there are lots of people who you know don't go to museums to do that and I think that's also okay I think there can be different and like different ways to engage with um, cultural institutions. They're all fairly viable. Um, but I guess the other thing I always kind of thought about was, like, I know what shows I hate to see, and it's that kind of show where, like, you go in and you can't tell whether it's art and, like, I don't know, and you just want... You wish there was some life in the room. Um, and I feel like that's the kind of thing that... Um, kind of fuels lots of negative uh, media um, around, uh, I guess, contemporary art. It's this kind of, this uh, you know, this kind of circle jerk thing where these artists are, like, making work for each other and no one else. Um, so if, you know, if there are, like, feet in the door, like, that's, that's my kind of key indicator of success in some ways of a show. Mm. I want to go back to something you said earlier about the expectations that are placed on artists from non-Anglo-Celtic <laughs> backgrounds. Um, to address certain certain things. I mean, yep. how how early on in your career did you sort of get a sense that you perhaps had to start exploring some of those sorts of things? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I think it became really obvious when I had a commercial show, and the first three things that sold um, pre the actual exhibition opening were three sculptures of Ganesh, which I kind of made. Just I just kind of made elephants and I thought, oh yeah, these can be Ganesh. <laughs> so I was like really young and really naive and then all of a sudden all these people were like, oh, I want these. Do you have any more Ganeshes? And I was like, <laughs> just go to like a, a trinket store and get one and, you know, put, put it in your mansion. But um, uh, I, think, I think I started off quite naive in that like when things started picking up I thought it was because I was just really good <laughs> and I worked hard um, but I think the other thing that happens is I think with artists of colour I think they often get framed in western contexts in ways that there's this certain expectation that they'll be unhappy with um, orthodox systems around representations of the body and museum practices because even when I like approached the Potter's collection like I really wanted to um, engage with their cultural collection mainly because like I had the opportunity to and engaging with a cultural collection is a real privilege um, you know to have people taking you around to zoology and to you know the classicals the classic section to the colonial section um, to works on paper and kind of allowing you to look at all these things um, but I wanted to kind of do a bit of research and I found that particularly within Australia there are lots of artists who have been asked to engage with um, cultural collections and institutions. And a lot of the time, these weren't white artists and they were often kind of given this job of like presenting this alternate narrative around um, the way in which, you know, these objects were framed and collected. Um, so I didn't want to kind of fall into that basket. What I kind of wanted to do was... Hate, oh, I'm going to say it, but I kind of wanted to think about it with this more like postmodern frame and like think about like the past, the present, the future and kind of think about everything as flat and kind of indicate how like this one thing, this one exhibition has actually come out of this whole range of things. It's a response to classical paintings. You know, I did look at Greek vases. I love taxidermy. There's an anthropomorphic element. Um, you know, I wouldn't present my ceramics on plinths with cardboard all over them if um, it wasn't this like orthodoxical convention to put pots, you know, on plinths. So... I think the whole 
expectations thing. Um, there's lots of criticism, like I've read, particularly from um, you know arts writers overseas about um, the way in which Australian artists of colour are presented. Um, but at the same time, I think. Like, I don't know, you got to, like, flaunt what your mama gave you. And if I've kind of noticed, like, if... I think if people want, you know, someone... I hate the word diverse, you know, to promote <laughs> on something, like, I'll, I'll say yes if I feel qualified, you know, to be the poster child for that. But I'll say no if I feel like it's tokenism. Yeah. So, but what was that point? You talked about the baby Ganeshas uh, yeah. and then you had a realisation that, hang on, something's happening. Yeah. So, at what point did you kind of think, I perhaps should be exploring mm -hmm. these sorts of things and mm -hmm. perhaps use it to your yeah, own yeah. advantage? Well, I think it kind of came before I was privy to all of those things because I think when I was doing my Masters, I was really interested in kind of representations of the phallus and um, I'd looked at all these kind of Western sources and lots of um, academic texts which kind of positioned you know, this phallus in this way that seemed really um, obvious and clear. You know, it's this symbol of patriarchy. There, You can link it to violence. You can link it to, um, you know, colonial narratives, you know, like penal colonies um, and all those kinds of things. Um, but then I kind of thought, oh, it might be interesting to kind of look at the um, sculptural representations that have exist, you know, from my kind of father's kind of context. And what I found interesting was in this kind of Hindu um, philosophical paradigm, there was this sense of, um, you know, blatant worship of phalluses that were not considered to be misogynistic. And for me, this was a fairly, um, like, eye-opening thing to see this phallus being theorised as something that wasn't kind of hand-in-hand hand with the um, domination of women. And that's something that you've actually explored in this show as well, the representation of female bodies and yep. challenging um, yep. some of those stereotypes. Yep. Um, <laughs> it's really funny because I think that lots of people, I think, when they see, like, one penis in the room, think there are, like, 700. Um, but I kind of... I, there, are, there, are, there are heaps in the room because the bronze adds, like, a lot of pieces. <laughs> um, but I think what I kind of realised is I was doing lots of research into the representation of male bodies because I think, um, like, I just did a kind of shock of the nude tour at the Art Gallery of New South Wales and they have this like nude exhibition and it's nudes from the Tate's collection and um, I think empirical analysis often works wonders on people and figures so part of my tour I like went earlier and I counted all the female bodies versus the male bodies and there was like 38 men and like 97 women kind of presented in that exhibition and the David Hockney ex etchings added like 20 men so if you just kind of removed them <laughs> you had like 18 men um, and I think there's this kind of sense that there's this kind of presentation of women's bodies as this kind of natural commodity um, you know in media in advertising and like in the most obvious sense it's in porn you know these women's bodies are consumed um, in this kind of great sense and not great good as in like vast but um what um but the other so what i was kind of thinking about is it's actually important to inject scrutiny or inflect scrutiny back onto male bodies in a way to um i guess destabilize its power in some sense and to create discussions because i think there's lots of anxiety about rep putting penises in public space and i did a lot of research into um even things like censoring in um public broadcasting contexts and um, flaccid penises are okay as long as they're not in focus but erect penises it's like hell no so there's this whole kind of uh, I think it, it almost feels like this kind of sacrosanct sanctimonious treatment of like penises in the media so I kind of wanted to like bring them back into um, you know everyday vernacular in a way that wasn't threatening in a way that could just kind of in incite some form of discussion yeah does that 
present challenges for you as, you know, a male, you know, trying to scrutinise the patriarchy and also, um, I guess, address some of the um, misconceptions about the feminine and, and, mm -hmm. and the body and also very aware that your male privileges come into yeah, yeah. your own work? Yeah. Well, um, like, I think, like, male privilege is a really interesting thing because, like, as we probably all know, um, gender representation in the arts, especially at the moment, is not... It's, you know, imbalanced. If you look at like collections in major institutions, we're still at a time where um, men, and especially white men, are like represented at a much higher scale. Um, you know, in Australia, um, especially um, than women. Um, so, and I'm also kind of interested in, like, I always think it's important to be ethical when creating work. Um, and I often, I often like struggled with this idea of, you know, is my work misogynistic? This kind of question and. I always thought it wasn't because, hey, I don't represent women, so it can't be. And then I kind of thought, hey, wait a minute, like exclusion is this like primary um, act that has excluded women from um, many things, you know, since the beginning of time and other minority groups. Um, so what I kind of focused more on was kind of elaborating a context around the work and being really vocal about that context and trying to be as clear um, as possible um, with that. Because I remember... Um, I started thinking, all right, gender fluidity is a thing in this exhibition. So I always kind of think of, I think some figures are more male and some figures are more female, but generally I think of them as just things, if you know what I mean, inhabiting both kinds of genders. And for me, that's kind of the way I'd like to address these things because I always kind of position, I always like to see these works as things that could be dug up and be presented as like, you know, and kind of, and if they were studied, like I think, okay, if this was dug up and studied, what could people infer from society at the time? Because um, if we look at lots of sculptural representations, like if we look at those ancient Greek pots, for example, they weren't like, there's just images of like people fucking like all over them, like men and men and men and women, and, and they weren't like subversive images. They were just sanctioning, like they were just socially sanctioned positions presented on pottery that you'd put in your house. Um, so I've tr I've, I'm always conscious of it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure how to address it in like meaningful real life terms. Do you think that there's enough of a conversation around that in, in art, especially in Australia? Um, well, I'm kind of privileged because the thing is, like what you find is it's really like the people I roll with, there is. But I think generally, um, I would like to, I would like to think there was, but I think the conversation could be a little bit more, if I'm going to use a academic term, it could be more intersectional. Um, because I think people are quite getting getting kind of attuned to the fact that, you know, we need to include um, as many, if not more women um, than men in these exhibitions, um, which I'm totally agree with. But at the same time, I think we need to understand that um, within that kind of framework, there, com there comes a whole different kind of scaffold of privilege and just, you know, and putting like, you know, 10 wealthy women and four, you know, doesn't, doesn't do anything for me. Mm. I want to go back to something you touched on earlier, which was cultural appropriation. And that was in the context of the criticism that you got for, from the traditional ceramicist, yeah. <laughs> ceramicists over yeah, your, yeah. your take on, yeah, yeah. on, on the work. Um, and, the hypocrisy that you found from, yep. you know, some of the men that uh, hurled this abuse at you. Do you just yep. mind elaborating a little bit? Um, okay. Well, <laughs> well, what's really interesting was I did some. I'd never really been interested in Australian pottery, but 
What I, the uh, the irony is, I don't. I only drink from handmade tableware. I only drink from hand thrown, eat from hand thrown plates. You know, in my house, that's what I love to collect. It's what I love to use. It's what I love to like hold to my mouth and sip from. Like if I ever buy a cup, I always. <laughs> I say touch the rim, but I do, um, and see if it'll feel. Do you know what I mean? So I actually have this real respect for um, handmade artisanal goods. So when kind of people were like, "You're shitting on my medium," I was like really kind of taken back because I've actually invested lots of money into this medium that I'm, you know, that I actually consume as a like loved consumer. And what's this is kind of interesting. But Art Month Sydney is doing a feature where they actually highlight different artists' collections, and they're actually highlighting my collection. And I said to them, "Look, you're going to have to take all my tableware because it's." actually part of my collection like it's what I value probably the most in lots of ways I um, mean they're completely happy to do that and position it alongside some of the other artworks I own um, but what I kind of found interesting was in Australia I think and generally in um, the ceramic scene like it's kind of um, you know it's uh, Asia is this place like I went to Korea and the skills that they have um, you know with surface treatment throwing um, ceramic technology is like completely like insane like because I went on a fairly orthodox ceramic um, residency um, and I didn't throw or anything. I didn't like make any celadon glazes. Like I'm not interested in that. But I could actually see the kind of historical underpinnings, the lineage, the cultural context in which these kinds of forms are emerging from. And what I found really interesting was, was that um, these people that were kind of making, taking issue with what I was making, I kind of looked at their work and... They were just these kinds of Asian forms um, and these kinds of surface treatments without any kind of acknowledgement um, of where these things came from. And for me, like often the term borrow gets chucked around, but if you're not giving it back, that's just stealing or copying. Do you know what I mean? It's not like you're posting it to China like and sending it to, a, to the factory where, where the design came from. You're, you're stealing or copying. Um, and I was really surprised that there hasn't been any, there wasn't really this kind of mainstream conversation of, I like these Asian Ming vases and here I am copying it. Like, even if they said that, I think, you know, I take less issue with it. But there seemed to be this kind of ownership around these Asian forms, which I felt, felt kind of lended itself into this broader kind of capitalist um, framework around the consumption and, you know, orientalization of things like yoga, you know. Um, so I kind of wrote this article just kind of pointing it out, just fairly, um, fairly objectively, um, saying exactly what you said, that it was hypocritical for people to talk about respect to a form when they're stealing, you know, from from Asia. And how was it received? <laughs> oh, okay. So I'm ageist, racist, sexist. <laughs> um, I'm against artisanal goods. Um, yeah, it wasn't <laughs> received well. <laughs> so is that something that you think about? I mean, you talked yeah. about uh, borrowing from other cultures yeah. and obviously, you know, your own background influences yeah. your work. Do you ever question your own responsibility when, yeah. when you are... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think um, I'm always, this might sound a bit weird, but it's kind of like, uh, how do I say this? Like, you never, like, with an artist or any kind of lots of cultural kind of um, practice, you can't really, it's not like, you know, one plus one equals two, this water weighs 60, has, is 60 mils. You kind of have to be confident that the ethical framework you've elaborated around your practice you know, is viable and solid. And what you kind of find is times change, things change, and, you know, you meet different people and you'll often find in hindsight that it wasn't as solid as you probably thought it was. Um, and, like, you know, people are recanting positions all the time. Uh, so I'm kind of, like, wary or I'm understanding that I'm sure some of the things I might be doing in terms of cultural symbols 
people may take offense with, you know. That's not my intention. But for me, like, what I found was, like, a lot of the people, a lot of the times I think the word Hinduism is kind of chucked around um, lots of my bios. Um, not written by me, really. But I think people often project an unnecessary weight into reading the work with this kind of paradigm of Hinduism because there's no kind of faith-based, um, you know, thing going on. It's all atheist. It's all secular. But what I think is, what I think, pe what I think the subtlety is, I think it's, it, it is possible to explore religion from a cultural perspective. And that's essentially what I was doing because, you know, when I was nine, when I was like, when I was growing up as a migrant in Australia, like I literally had to go to the church and the temple, like within the same week, every week, um, to hang out with the different sides of my um, parents' families. Um, and I remember like as a child, always feeling more kind of comfortable and like wishing I could just go to the temple, not because of any philosophical reason, just because it was more fun and the cousins I liked more were there and I didn't have to sit <laughs> down and like be told what to do and there weren't people getting like maimed on the wall. Um, so <laughs> like from a very young age, like I'd always like been really interested um, in these kinds of, and the sculptures and the colour. And I remember in Westmead Temple where I grew, where I knew where I grew up, they had like chickens and peacocks running around. And then like, I remember if I'd go to the church, my mum would like wash my hair and comb it. And I just felt like some, like something was being, like like a straitjacket was putting, being put over me or something. Um, so I think on some level, these kinds of Hindu references are also kind of referencing the fact that like Hindu gods have kind of become almost kitsch in this kind of Western context context as well. You've got people wearing these big T-shirts with like Ganesh on it. And if you go to Tree of Life, you see like everything's there. Um, so, so I wanted to kind of somehow start or create this dialogue around, you know, who had, and you think about yoga, for example, like being positioned as this kind of magic weight loss, you know, practice. Um, I think like, I really wanted to kind of start this discussion or kind of get people thinking about, you know, who has the right to represent these kind of gods and things in different ways. And, um, for example, the show at the Potter, there aren't really any representations of Hindu gods apart from the three Kalis. And the Kalis were kind of really interesting to me because Kali's this kind of creator-destroyer figure and she kind of wears this belt of arms and this necklace of heads from these men that she's kind of killed and she's like stomping on Shiva. And I found her this kind of really... Um, and she's kind of been taken up by lots of feminists as this um, figure that represents, you know, like this female kind of veracity. Um, so I kind of wanted to like literally like put her, make her the tallest thing in the exhibition and kind of aggrandize her in that very simplified way. So I made the, so I got, I borrowed those kind of portraits from the um, cultural collections, kind of hung them really high. Um, so she was kind of the um, thing looking down on all this kind of phallic shit going on, like <laughs> in the <laughs> foreground. Um, so that's, that was kind of why I put her there. Do you ever one? Do you ever think about whether audiences are looking at your work um, and kind of exoticizing it to a certain? I mean, you talked about yep. you made these elephants, and there was the assumption that they were all baby Ganeshas. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think that there's an expectation that because you know you do come from a cultural background that your work is going to be heavily influenced through that? Mm -hmm. So therefore, yep. the audience is bringing yeah, that yeah. assumption yep. into your exhibition. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, what I think. Um, it's kind of interesting, though, is I have a Christian, like, heritage, which is equally, you know, as has much length and lineage as my Hindu heritage, yet it's not as sexy to describe, you know, to kind of reference that. I think this kind of 
Hindu, it just, I think, because what I kind of realise is um, all the things that happen in the real world and all the factors that contribute to all those processes in the real world happen in the art world. Like, you know, there are elements of racism, there are elements of exoticization, there is sexism, just like the world in general, right? It's not this kind of safe haven utopia that's free of all those things. Um, so my kind of thinking is, like, I can't help that, if you know what I mean. And I think there are lots of... I think some artists kind of fall between two poles. They'll start to kind of self-orientalise, like, look how exotic I am. Or they go into the, I'm not going to actually explore my cultural context because um, then I'll be kind of positioned in this very limited way, um, which is kind of this, almost like this... And they're kind of both othering processes, if you think about it. But I always think, I'm always, I think how I kind of deal with it is I feel like personally um, that my explorations are coming from a re place of research, um, you know, and genuine cultural and familial connection. And I feel like I'm not going to stop doing something um, to make, you know, just to like address the way this kind of world is at the moment. But at the same time, it's really good. Because if I need some pocket money, I'll just make some Ganeshes. <laughs> so, you know, there are good, there are positives and negatives with everything. <laughs> um, I could ask you more questions, but I think I will give this opportunity to the audience. If anyone's got a question to ask Ramesh. Anyone with any? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, so I am currently working towards the National, which is a carriage works. So I'm working on a kind of large scale installation and I always think, um, what can I do next? Because I'm kind of one of those people that I don't like to make the same thing twice. Um, so the next, <laughs> I'm, the next thing is I'm working with lots of neon and I'm kind of incorporating um, lighting and programming lighting into the large scale sculptural works. Um, so I'm working with a lighting designer for that. And um, so we're thinking like this big, big ass like dirt means meets electricity kind of installation kind of like the most primal thing meets this other kind of elemental force but kind of mediated by this like electrician which I find really interesting and then after that I'm making a kind of large-scale fountain <laughs> yeah how long does that process take from inception to to you actually having an exhibition okay um that's a good question. Um, a lot of the time, not much time because I don't get much notice. Um, so I'm kind of limited by those parameters. Um, with the fountain, I get about a year, I've got about a year to develop it, so I'm pretty good. But I think what's happened in the last year, I've kind of um, monumental scale is something. It's quite a privilege to work to work in a scale that's monumental. And what happens is you're kind of forced to work collaboratively. So the studio um, practice becomes team based. So like with the fountain, I'm working with bronze caster, a plumber, an engineer, and a builder. Um, so it actually feels, doesn't feel as hands-on, if you know what I mean, but I think it's still kind of, um, it's still completely engaging, it's still challenging. Um, it feels a bit more like project management in some respects, but um, I think, I don't know how I say it, but I think going big is really, really addictive, if you know <laughs> what I mean, and just like making with your hands and stuff is great and packing the kilns really great, but... What I can't, I just made a bronze, for example, and like it's kind of weird because like I always conceive myself as a, having a practice which is primarily hand-based, and I usually and I perceive myself as having interest with other people's practices that are hand-based. Um, so I've, it's interesting because with the bronze that I've got at the Potter, I, I still don't understand that it's mine or that I made it. Because you know what I mean? I feel like someone else made it, but it's mine, so I kind of love it. If you know what I mean, I can have a more objective kind of relationship with it. Um, 
But what was your actual question? <laughs> I think it was about the process. Oh, the process. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, if you want to be really unglamorous about it, I just scribble and then I make and then I get the people in to kind of make my things practical and um, feasible and make sure they don't fall and maim people. Yep. Any other questions? <laughs> Anyone got a question? Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. Um, so I'm in a big... I'm in a show in Bangladesh, which is a survey of um, art from South Asia. So, so contemporary art practice from the South Asian region. Um, so there's 10 solo exhibitions associated with that, as well as um, an architecture commission and a range of other things. And then um, that's going to be shown at Artspace in Sydney because it's a co-commission. Um, so what I wanted to do was kind of um, present something kind of really whack because I think um, I, I kind of like this idea of someone like me doing like a big masculine statement because that's kind of like the last thing, the last way I perceive myself is like this big masculine dude making like big ass work that, you know, you have to have a crane to move around. Um, but there was some really interesting things because I've always wanted to make a fountain because I'm always really interested in like um, whenever I go to parks, specifically public parks and these, there's this real kind of narrative about, you know, classicism and colonialism kind of within the sculpture, within the ways these fountains are constructed, and they're often quite humorous. You know, you've got kind of water spurting out of people's mouths and out of their penises onto other things and the turtles squirting on something. Um, so I think the other thing is, I think from a very base level, I think if things aren't moving, um, people kind of will tune out a bit. So I'm interested in kinetic sculpture as well at the moment, so that's why my lights are going to flash to keep people engaged. Um, so, <laughs> so the other thing is, so it's going to be a big, um, tall, self-portrait fountain. So it's going to be at three metres tall in bronze and I'm just wow. going to be weighing into this, into like a bucket and then the, <laughs> then the bucket's going to feed the water back into the sculpture and it'll be this kind of continual process. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I, I, I heard that apparently you create original work for every exhibition. Yep. I usually do, but I think um, from a body, bodily perspective, it just doesn't become feasible. Um, in the last few years, I actually have created original work for every exhibition, and that's mainly because I've had a really hectic exhibition schedule and things haven't been able to travel. Um, but... I think um, an element of site specificity is often what I'm interested in because I think especially in Australia we're on grounds that are incredibly loaded. Um, you know, if we think about we're always on Aboriginal land, um, there are different kinds of institutions. Do you know what I mean? I think it's kind of... I feel like it's a wasted opportunity not to engage with the kind of idiosyncrasies of each gallery space um, and the kind of context, that unique kind of context it's in. Because even the graffiti, I thought, oh, that's really Melbourne. I'll do some <laughs> graffiti on the wall. Um, so I think um, engaging with space and I guess these kind of microcultures within Australia is what I'm interested in. So do you actually ever get downtime? It seems like you're... Uh, um, well, m maybe my idea of downtime is different to another person's idea of downtime. We had this conversation <laughs> the other day and I was saying that doing emails for me is downtime and doing my spreadsheets and doing my BAS statements. Um, but <laughs> I, re um, I think, I don't know, I think what happens is I think I've got, I don't know how to explain it apart from this kind of cliche that I'm just kind of obsessed with what I do. Like, as soon as I wake up, I just kind of want to do it. Do you know what I mean? And if I'm doing something else, that's what I'm thinking about. Mm. Um, and it wouldn't be about joy. It's this kind of thing where this is just, all I can do mm. like I can't do anything else really like it's what I want to do it's what I love doing um, and I think there's this sense of 
the creative process is always generative. And if I've done one thing, like it's like, oh, now I can do this and this and this over it and this and and also this. You know what I mean? So you get on the phone and you send the emails and then, you know, things just start flowing and I don't like to stop really. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Anyone with a question? No? Um, so going back to why you're here... <laughs> Your current exhibition. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, in the beginning, yeah. what, what 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 inspired that that title? Oh okay. Um, I was doing lots of research into clay. I guess how clay is perceived from a cultural perspective, and um, what I find really interesting is people often have this like um, there's like warmth. Um, there's this sense that clay has this visceral kind of corporeal dimension to it. You know, there's this direct relationship to the body. Um, it starts in a bag and then there's this transformative thing that happens and it becomes something else. And there's this idea that, you know, you can do anything with clay. And, you know, clay's kind of embedded in all these industrial and manufacturing narratives as well, like 3D printing. You know, you can do that. You can do put clay in a computer now and stuff. So, um, but if we kind of look into the, this foundation of like Western society and Christianity, like clay's kind of loaded as this kind of foundation of the first male. Um, and in lots of ways, I think engaging with, you know, body politics, clay seems to be this really loaded and charged material, which allows you to engage with it. But I think at the same time, I think I like to think there's this um, egalitarian dimension to clay in that like anyone can make a pinch pot you know what I mean? And glaze it and have a great time. Do you know what I mean? So I think it's this kind of material that um, that I kind of feel is kind of really embedded in this whole idea of creation. And the other thing is, I think um, creation narratives, I think in any society, even like if you look at any kind of historical textbook about how political, like how a certain political regime came about, the kind of start, the genesis, the beginning is always this kind of really loaded term, uh, this loaded kind of space. Um, so I wanted to kind of present this idea of the kind of beginning at the end that kind of had everything going on. Um, because I kind of like think that um, if you start from this kind of chaotic space, you know, you can actually... There's lots of kind of options, you know, to start making sense mm. rather than if you kind of have to fit into the package. Mm. So that's Do you think you'll always work with clay? No. Um, pff, the other thing about clay is it's, it's really um, temperamental <laughs> and, like, moody. Um, and it's also... Um, there are also kind of health risks. Like, it creates a lot of dust, for example. And, you know, I, like, I couldn't work with clay for the last couple of months just because my fingers were, like, RSIing. So I actually got told not to work with it for a bit, which is fine because I have an assistant <laughs> and he can just do it. But um, it's not. Like what I think was, I think what I kind of understand is that like I really love working with clay, but I understand there are certain limitations that will make will mean that I'm not going to always be able to work with it. Like you have to be fairly privileged to work with clay like in a really large capacity because you've got to have lots of money. You've got to have a big kiln. You've got to have a big space. Um, you know, you've got to have invest in capital like to be able to have a studio practice with clay and I don't want to like feel rooted, you know, by this kiln, you know what I mean, for the rest of my life. Mm. Um, but I think what I really want to get into is um, large-scale public sculpture. For the reasons that you talked about before. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, I think, um, I think seeing kind of fun, wild sculpture and I've always wanted to do a park. That's <laughs> like my, kind of one of my dreams, to work with an architect yeah. and do like this wacky park that kids could play on and have a great time. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So just coming back to the clay, um, with the sculptures that are currently on exhibition, on average, how, how long would it take you to, to make one of those? Okay. Um, with clay, there's a process. And um, as anyone who's worked with it before, like I fire multiple times. So each work would have probably gone in the kiln about four times, four or five times. Um, and I kind of do this Frankenstein thing where I make, I make, make all these parts. I'll make torsos, I'll make bodies, I'll make legs. And then I kind of will start stacking them and then kind of suddenly they'll start singing to me and I start adding to them and elaborating onto them. Um, so I think in terms of length, I can actually build fairly quickly. That's not the kind of thing, but there's this horrible thing. you Like with big ceramic forms, you've kind of got to nurse them as they're drying. Like you've got to wrap certain bits and if it's too hot, you've got to like control your temp, you know, control your atmosphere. So it's quite an involved process in some respects, but I will say compared to other people who work with it, I'm fairly quick. Like, I'm fairly immediate. Like, I don't really have time to sit around. I don't really want... It's not even that I have time to. I just don't want to, like, sit around, like, doing this for, like, the whole day. Like, that'll just drive me completely insane. Kind of in that old school, like, mentality where I kind of want to sweat from <laughs> making my work. Yeah. One final question, unless someone has a question that they want to ask you. Um, your show runs until the end of this month. Um, if there's something that you want... Um, people that walk into that space to leave with, what what would it be? Smile. <laughs> no, um, yeah, well, I think, um, well, I think, oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think as my kind of main thing is what I wanted to do with that show is kind of encourage people to think about the space of the museum in a, with, a, with a more critical kind of lens. Because I think what's happening at the moment is, uh, you know, art's being put in mo in lots of contexts. It's really fashionable, you know, to put art, you know, in the toilet or wherever you want to put it. Um, so I kind of wanted to, and often there's this sense of, you know, whatever's in the museum, whatever's on the wall, um, there's this kind of system of value um, that kind of plays into those things and those spaces. So kind of all I wanted to kind of present was this idea that, you know, maybe um, museums can be spaces that are about like enjoyment, about thinking, about expression, um, without that kind of weight of um, history, colonialism, conservation, registration. <laughs> so yeah. Awesome. Um, well, if you don't mind joining me in thanking Ramesh for a <laughs> Thank you. very insightful conversation. <laughs> And his exhibition is still on at the Ian Potter Museum of Art until, I think, the 27th of February. Mm -hmm. um, and feel free to check it out. Thank you very Thanks. much. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs>